So I'd like to introduce uh, Laurent, and I'm going to read a short bio, and then we're going to dive uh, more into some specifics. But Laurent is a scientist. He has a background in mathematics and physics and has a PhD in computer science. Laurent started off as a software developer in management, strategy, and then consulting. He has led software vendors, including DeSalt Systems, the world leader in 3D industry. Since 2007, Laurent has been managing agile organizations uh, and has become progressively uh, expert at agile as a manager, not necessarily as a consultant. He has led transformations to Agile by um, asking how to make the changes that are implemented sustainable. And during that same period, there was a big wave of Agile spreading through the software world. Uh, in 2017, Laurent decided to um, start his own company, Digital Positive. It brings this expertise to large consulting companies in their large accounts, uh, which, um, which he's gonna be discussing uh, his company and some of the work that he does with us today. So Laurent, thank you again for joining us. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm fine. Excellent, excellent. So I'd like to get started uh, with your computer science background. So yeah. can you talk, uh, talk to us a little bit about how you got into computer science? What made you interested in that industry? Uh, yeah, it was, um, I was fond of, of drawing. And um, I, I was doing mathematics. And when doing a PhD, I, um, I had the opportunity to work in the computer graphics uh, 3D industry. So it was the very beginning of visual effects. And it, since it was the beginning, now you know everything is done by computer, but then you had to program all the rendering, all the animation, it was mathematics. Um, so my, my, um, my PhD was about modeling with um, curves and surfaces, but also I worked on animation of characters. And then I used robotics, mathematics, and put them into the characters so that we could, that people could animate characters back then. It was in the 87, 88. And, and the work I've done was later, now it, it's in a software called Maya that is used in the, in the visual effects industry. It's, it's been, awarded uh, an Oscar for the technical visual effects. So it's, it's the kind of software that is used professionally now. But at the, at the time when I started, it was the very beginning we were exploring all that. It was fun. <laughs> so it sounds like you were really a pioneer um, with early, early animation and uh, three-dimensional objects and rendering and things like that. Uh, if you said you were doing that in the uh, late 80s? Yeah, 80, 80. Seven, eighty-eight. It was the, the very beginning. You know, the, 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 to buy if you wanted to do something on a machine, the machine cost worth five hundred thousand dollars. Oh wow! It was big. It was named Silicon Graphics, and they were pioneers in hardware for graphics. So it was the very, very beginning. And you, you could only do a thirty seconds movie. It took months to compute. <laughs> no. I can imagine, I can imagine. I, I see a lot now online uh, through YouTube and other places where people are putting together uh, 3D and animated um, movies and shows, maybe just 20 or 30 minutes, but it looks like quality that we saw in the late 80s, early 90s if we went to the movie theaters. 
So it seems like that technology has really advanced pretty quickly over the course of the past couple of decades, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it changed. It's all about the speed of computers. Everything that needed months to do, now it takes, it could almost be done in real time. So it's all about the speed of computers and all the mathematics behind the scenes are this, not the same, but they didn't change so much. Now we can make uh, hair, skin, uh, very impressive, uh, realistic faces. We can do everything, fires, explosions. But that, have, you, have you seen that new trend about deep fakes? Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Do you see any, um, I, I would imagine there's so many different ethical concerns that come in with something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. They manage to do automation of everything. You just replace one face by another and just get, it's get done in, in real time. It's, it's so it's impressive, impressive the technology. Right yeah, it's so impressive the technology, but it's scary what people can do with it. Um, so something, uh, when you were talking about um, how much it costs and how long it took to render certain objects on screens, back in the 80s and 90s, I would imagine that putting together um, a full simulation back then, or even now, would take a lot of work. Um, and it would involve a lot of management processes uh, across different departments. So I, I wanted to use that, that, um, that topic as an opportunity to segue into discussing um, the operations behind uh, systems, and that brings us to agile. Yeah. So, uh, can you? Um, so, most of our audience are uh, business professionals, and some of them have heard of agile before, but a lot of them haven't. So, can you talk a little bit about what agile is? Yeah. So, it, it's, it's agile started, I would say, in the mid '90s in the software industry, and um, it was the start of very big projects in IT, in, in, in computer science. And so the, the big problem was that back then, project management was inspired by regular um, uh, building management or real hardware management. You know, it was based on you have a statement of work, you have specifications, then you break it down into pieces, then you do all the pieces, you integrate everything and you deliver to the customer. And it would, they were projects that took years with big budgets, and it was well managed that way. But when going doing that for software, then it didn't work at all. The people who run big projects figured out that it was always over budget. It was not what the people were asking for. There were studies back then that said, that showed that sometimes sixty to seventy percent of the functionalities that were developed by software developers were never used. So it was a waste of money that was incredible. And so they figured out that there should be another way to do software. We should not apply the building industry processes to do software because there was, it was something different. The major thing was that people did not understand each other. When you talk about a building or a car, you know what, what you're going to get in the end. When you were doing software, it was all invisible. You were talking to geeks who knew, uh, <laughs> you know, who knew the software, who were not able to 
to show in advance what it would look like. So the idea behind that was to, to try to work in an iterative way to show a, 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 the progress of the, pro, of the software every two weeks or so and to get the feedback from, from real users instead of making a big tunnel that would take two years or so and, and only get the feedback in the end. So it was basically iterative, but the, in order to be able to do that, you need to be able to have teams that deliver real pieces of a product at a regular pace. And it makes a big change in the organization. So Agile is doing that, iterations, and it has large, it makes large changes in the way the, the companies are organized. Got it. You know, I've been doing software development uh, at one of my organizations for about seven or eight years. And before we hired our own software development team, uh, we would contract out to different companies. And we would always start with a statement of work, like you talked about. And something that would always frustrate me from a customer's point of view is along the way throughout the development process, I would ask for small changes. So I'd say, okay, can you render this a different color? Can you make that a little bit bigger? Can you put in a search field here or a drop-down box there? And they would start charging me for that. And so it would be a charge for every uh, item that they put in there and things like that. And then later when I ended up starting my own development team, I saw it from the other side and how frustrating it can be when the customer asks for enhancements throughout the development process. Can you talk a little bit about how Agile uh, addresses those issues? Yeah, the, the way Agile uh, works is that you get the customer inside the team, actually, or someone who is representing the customer, the end user, uh, called the product owner, it's a role, is inside the team and always discussing with the people developing the software. So there is a very fast feedback loop inside the team because um, you don't have, like, on one side the customer, on the other side the development team, and sometimes the QA te testing, doing the test, in another team yet. You have everyone together and they make a small team with many, you know, many skills in order to be able to be autonomous and to deliver a part of the product. And so this fast feedback inside the team makes it possible to get, you know, the right thing delivered every two weeks. Instead of delivering something, it takes, it takes a long time and then asking for, for a validation by the customer and hearing that it was not what he really expected. So now it's, it's really embedded. And from an, I would say an economical point of view, uh, we save lots of delays, lots of, you know, waiting times for the feedback. And, um, and this makes the difference. So it's, it's funny to see that the, the, the efficiency comes from the fact that we have stable teams working together and finally, they end up by you know like talking about the same language. They really work like a sports team. You, they really understand each other, and you 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 save a lot of time by having that such a team. So it's all the cost of communication that you save. So communication very important, feedback very important. Yeah. Let me ask about another component of the process. So something that we learned to do over the years was creating wireframes. 
Um, so for people that don't work in the industry, those are kind of technical specifications or a, a layout of what the system would look like with some minor functionality. So does Agile use things like wireframes and creating an initial design before uh, development starts? Uh, yes, they, they do that in the early process, in the, in the early stages to get a buy-in and to get the, the team and stand. But as soon as they can have something that is re the real software running, even partly, even if it's only a piece of, of the software running, we replace the wireframes by the real thing. And what you're talking about still exists. It's, uh, it's the UX design, user experience design. And there are teams who keep doing the user experience design beside the team. And they also validate that the team is delivering what they are expecting because they are, um, the UX teams usually have a background in cognitive science and design. So they try to, to understand what is the context where the software will be used in order to design it in a way that is really consistent with the, the customer expectations. Um, because software developers are usually not good at that. Yeah, absolutely. I've had that experience as well. So uh, something that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and it prompted me to think about the Agile process, but you said every two weeks. So my understanding is that with Agile, that they go through sprints and that the yeah. sprints are roughly about two weeks long. So could you talk about that process? Yeah, so two weeks is not, um, it's not mandatory. It could be one week or three weeks, but it's... Usually teams do it at that pace. Um, it, it's true we call it a sprint. And I personally, I don't like the name sprint because it gives the feeling that people are running like hell for two weeks and then they have another sprint and then they run again. It, um, it's rather uh, a drumbeat. Uh, it has to be sustainable. So uh, it's not, the, the word sprint is not really the, the, best, the best way to describe it. Um, but behind that, it's important to have a drumbeat. And every two weeks, um, there are several things that happen. The Monday morning of the first week, there is a sprint planning, and everyone, all the team meets in order to decide what they're going to deliver in two weeks. Um, every day in the morning, they have what they call a scrum. So it's a stand-up meeting, usually 10 or 15 minutes, and they are all standing up in front of a... Um, a board with uh, sticky notes and things like that. And they just say a couple of things like, what did I do yesterday? What I'm going to do today? And do I need help? And, and that's it. It's only a synchronization point. Um, and then at the end of the second week, there is a demo. And the team gathers and shows, everyone shows what is done during the two weeks. So it could be like, uh, synchronization, but it's also a means to get positive reinforcement. Like we, we, we are showing uh, what we've done together, which is the purpose of the team to deliver that, and we show the progress. Um, I love that process. So I, I've got to bring this back to behavior science and organizational behavior management, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, so if I understand the process correctly with Agile, it starts off with a statement of work and maybe some wireframes where the expectations for the project are set out. And then 
each and every day there's a scrum where people talk to each other within the team. They explain what they did the day before and get feedback from their colleagues as well as possibly some positive reinforcement for what they completed. And then once that process is done uh, every day, then over the course of the next two weeks, they're working on specific objectives uh, that have been set out through the statement of work. And there's a team member from the customer that's involved giving yeah. feedback every day. Did I get that correct? Right. Yeah, you're right. That's it. And you get this trumpet with a customer involved in the, in the process, the development process. Every two weeks, you can have a say about, okay, that's, now you show me what you've done. Now I can react about what's most important for me for the next two weeks. And, and this, is, this is the way to solve misunderstandings that happen in the regular project management uh, ways of working. Because then the whole team can adapt to what we've done now, what's next. They are not doing another technology, of course. It's the same team. They are supposed to work on the same product, but priorities can change according to what they've done. And, it's, uh, it, and that is the power of this methodology. You adapt every two weeks. You can focus a little differently on, on different priorities. You know what I'm really seeing too, uh, based on what you just described there, is the importance of performance feedback in this entire process. So feedback is given because you have a customer that's part of the team, so they're giving feedback immediately to the software developers saying, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. Um, so can you talk about the importance of feedback here a little bit? Yeah, feedback is, is real, really the, the most important thing in that system. It's, you get frequent feedback. That is, it's, it's not only feedback like I like it or not. It's feedback based on a real part of the product. So it's meaningful. It's not like, I like it. It's not um, subjective. It's, we plan to do that. You've done it or not, yes or no. Um, it is a product, so it is not an opinion. It is something that is running. Uh, there is also this, the fact that the team is testing its own product before doing the demo, before showing it. So there is a, some level of quality in the product. So we are not saying, um, congratulations, you've done a nice uh, drawing. It's, it's soft, software that is running with quality, with all the tests running, etc. So um, it is something that is really very close to the final product that will be shipped. It's incomplete in terms of functionality. It, it's less than the what is supposed to be delivered in the end, but the criteria to validate it are all okay. And this compels the team to do to have a very uh, high level of um, of quality all the time. And suppose they were not doing uh, tests, the product owner would say, "I like it." As as a comment, this would be a positive reinforcement for doing bad quality. Right. Uh, so it's important that we have a level of uh, of quality that is good, so that if the feedback is good, it will act as a positive reinforcement for a real for real stuff that is well done with the the performance quality, with the right user experience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it means that the team needs to be 
deliver a part of the product with all the criteria, all the checklists done. And then the feedback will be good and it, it will be a meaningful feedback for the team. You know, I really like that you were talking about that, that the feedback is meaningful. I think a lot of managers out at organizations think that feedback is just, hey, great job. Yeah. But feedback is really about information transfer, um, uh, providing information that can help uh, the performer yeah. do their job better. And mm -hmm. when you talk about meaningful feedback, I'm sure that uh, they're giving them specifics about, I'd like this to work this way, right? Yeah, and, and the product owner is also the person who is representing the end user. So he or she can say, as the representative of the customer, I can tell you it's good. In in uh, organizations that are not doing agile, they are work working in silos. So, so the person who is your manager is telling you you've got, done a good job, but he could he can only tell you that it's a good technical job on his area. Um, but sometimes the managers you have don't see any customer. <laughs> so it's not meaningful. And working in Agile across silos means that the person who is giving you the feedback is really a person who can tell you about what the real customers will like. So it's, it's not only meaningful in terms of quality, but it's also meaningful in terms of what the expectations are, et cetera. Absolutely. It's something that I've been learning over the course of the past couple of years with software development as well is uh, the user experience design. And from a behavior analysis or, uh, yeah, from a behavior analysis perspective, something as simple as if you want to navigate from one page to another page on a, a particular software platform, having the fewest number of clicks and mouse scrolls as possible. So we refer to in behavior analysis as response effort. So can you talk a little bit about uh, that process in software development as well? Yes, so that is the user experience process. And usually it's people who have a very different background from uh, business and from technology. It's yet a third discipline. Um, so I had, personally I had the opportunity to, to to manage uh, an organization with a UX design team. And they have a huge importance in, in the final product. Uh, usually they are involved at the beginning, talking to customers, not to find the solution, but rather to facilitate um, the, the way the customer will express their needs. And also they show them designs, prototypes, only drawings, and they get the feedback from customers. And after some time, they would uh, put this information in the agile process so that, and they would come to demos so that the, the product that is delivered is uh, technically good, um, functionally doing the right thing, the stuff it's supposed to do, and from a UX standpoint, also adapted to the, the user's way of working. And what they usually do is go and see what the customers are, are doing in their office. So they visit customers. They write down everything that is around the, the customer, like uh, are you using the software one hour a week or is it intensive? They ask them, are you under pressure or not? What, what are the key things that you need to do? So it's, it's a lot about interviewing the context of use 
and they bring the context of the final customer inside the team, inside the development team. Their role is to bring um, this information, which is usually not visible and that usually the marketing team don't do. Absolutely. And I've noticed too, um, and, and I'm just speaking from my own experiences in, in software development over the course of the past few years, but uh, I, I've noticed as well that there's certain, um, especially at the beginning of the user experience. So if we download an app now and it asks for too much information ahead of time, put your name and address and email and phone number, I find myself doing what we see customers doing. I'll just delete the app. You know, if there's too much to do, I'll delete the app and go to something else that's easier to use. So is that a big part of the user experience as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they try to evaluate what is really needed. Uh, if, if the, how many times people will be using it, they uh, evaluate what, what the cognitive load of people, how much information they are supposed to do if they are under stress. Uh, you can't ask them f to fill in, you know, uh, 20 fields all the time. Um, so, and if they need to have the information available very easily, sometimes they have another application, they need only to copy paste something from another application into your app, etc. So they try to evaluate all that. And of course, to, to get a, the minimum information that makes the software run, um, but also to, to make the user experience as pleasant as possible. So if there is something that you need to fill in, they try to only ask it when it is really needed. So when you're asking for a specific service, then, oh, you didn't fill in this, so we need it now. But they don't ask everything up front. So all that is, is a specialty. It's, I know it's a, it's a job. It's a, and UX design is now becoming a very uh, demanding, demanded uh, skill. So UX people make more money than software developers, for example. Yeah, good ones. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's um and and personally, I find it very very important to have. It's a small team compared to software development, but it's very very valuable. It makes a big difference. So, and uh, just one more question about uh, user experience, because I found, and it's interesting that you say that they get paid a little bit more than software developers if they're good at their job, and that's uh, that makes a lot of sense to me because. I've found that the user experience is so important. You know, that's kind of your gateway to the customer. And if you're not taking care of your customer, the end user, then you're not going to have a platform. But what I wanted to ask about is, do you, have you ever seen problems where the user experience team, the UX team, uh, the people that interview and represent the customers and the end users, do they ever have conflicts with uh, developers or managers that want to protect security. So that was a big thing that I see all the time. We'd be working on, for example, uh, a healthcare app. And we're like, well, just have it where they can use the thumbprint or the face ID. But then that would violate um, a healthcare security protocol. So do you ever run into problems like that? Um, yes, not, not about security, but other, other kinds of conflicts about performance, for example. UX teams would like like to have a very high definition picture, and uh, the tech guys would tell you now it, it's going to take forever to get transferred. So you have, as a manager, you have to balance several aspects of the product. 
uh, and there is always the UX team asking for the very nice thing. Uh, the technology team with, who needs to do things with performance, quality, and sometimes security, and the people in charge, the product owners who, who want to, to stack as many functionalities, as many features as possible for their customers. So you, you always have to find the right trade trade-off between all these people who want to have different priorities. And a good product is the one that makes it all together in a consistent way. How do you accomplish that with Agile? How do you get uh, two different departments to have, I, I guess, uh, mission alignment? Um, how do you get them to uh, work cohesively together? Well, that's it. It's all in the demo. Every sprint, you have a demo. And every sprint, so every two weeks, uh, as a manager, I had the opportunity to say more of this, less of that. Um, uh, now you're putting too too much in the UX. It's okay. It's already nice enough. Now let's do more functionality, and this can be adjusted every two weeks. So the idea of agile is not to say upfront and to to you know to make a big state of, statement of work and to say exactly what you want because you don't, but rather to delegate to the teams. Um, for two weeks um, to delegate, delegate some autonomy. Uh, and the counterpart is that after two weeks, you have a check and you have something to look at and to react. So in the worst case, you only lose two weeks worth of development. If you really blew it, you know, I mean, it's two weeks wasted, but usually it's not, and you only have minor adjustments. And after some time, we all find a way to, we all understand each other and it's just autonomy for the team and they deliver really the best thing they can do. And you excellent, excellent. Adjustments. And, you know, to your point earlier, um, uh, when I was doing a little bit of research on Agile, um, part of the philosophy that I found was that something that you've been talking about here a lot is instead of it being a predictive model, it's an adaptive model where you can make changes as you go. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly that. Because the, 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 the assumption in software is that you don't know what, what customers want. You have to show it. It's so technical it's, it, and it's virtual. You no, know, it's not like an object. You could draw it and then you just have to manufacture it. It's, there are lots of things and behaviors in the software that are not predictable. So the best way to do it is just... Let people do it and we'll react. Excellent, excellent. So on that note, I wanted to ask a little bit about the values behind Agile. So uh, in my research on Agile, I came across four basic uh, values on Agile. So I'd like to read them really quickly and then get your reaction or have you uh, talk about them a little bit. So uh, the four are, uh, number one, Individuals and interactions are more valued than processes and tools. Working software is a primary measure of success instead of documentation. Customer collaboration is more valued than uh, negotiating contract terms. And the last one, being agile as opposed to following a rigid plan is highly valued. So could you talk a little bit about those four values and how they function within the Agile framework? Yeah, so, so these, these values came in are the Agile Manifesto, and they were written by the several P 
people who were working in some kind of agile, but in different with different flavors. And they found out that it was consistent and they needed to find to create something that would federate them. So they created the Agile Manifesto then. Uh, they could not agree on what amount of documentation, what amount of uh, meetings, uh, how many meetings they should do, etc. So they they had the agreement that they were on the same line, but they could not write down an exact process for agile. So they decided to only write values, like we want more of this and less of that. And it was remember it was in the context where the beginning of agile of software development was big projects coming from hardware industry. So everything was documented. Uh, teams were working in silos and they would hand over the documentation from one team to another that would translate it into their own language, etc., etc. So there was a lot of paperwork. Um, and uh, teams the, in the Agile guys wanted to do something very, very, very flexible and very human because they believed in human interactions and they've seen it. You know, they had the product owners with the development teams and the QA uh, doing the tests and, and it worked so well that they wanted to make that work. So they, but they knew they needed some documentation. They knew they needed, you know, some traceability and things, a few serious things, at least for the management. So uh, they could not discard it right away so they they wrote something like that we have a cursor but then we prefer that but we we are not sure 100 and it will depend for example if you are doing healthcare so software there are lots of regulation you have to follow so you still have to do some documentation um the same for, for other kinds of uh, activities so you cannot be 100 on one side so the I always see the effectiveness of a particular method or model is in the um, is in the effectiveness of um, how can I uh, ask this question? So I see the effectiveness of a model uh, being illustrated or shown in the uh, in its outputs in its outcomes. So is this model is agile? better than previous models that came before it? Is it, are you finding a lot of success with it? Yes. So th there is, there are lots of success stories in Agile and all the startups work in Agile from the beginning. Um, the, the, um, the gains, I've seen that in, in my own organization, they can be huge. They can be zero depending on the kind of product you're doing. You can go agile and not make any improvement, but on some areas you can. I always uh, already saw a times four gain on a, on a on a team. They made it four times faster. Um, but it really depends on on the kind of software you're doing, on the architecture. If it's a big, you know, heavyweight software, it's very difficult to be agile on that. Um, now, the big challenges today are scaling agile in large companies. How do we do that? Because you, since we are relying on teams, um, small teams, teamwork cannot scale to 1,000 people. The way to scale is by uh, making more teams work in parallel, but still small teams. 
and then find ways to synchronize lots of small teams. So it's very interesting because it raises a new question about how to organize for agile at scale, which is my, my work today. Um, the other thing is that you still need management. Uh, but if you think that there are people collaborating between different tech, um, different disciplines like product owners working every day with developers, it means that their own managers need to be in line as well. Like the head of marketing or head of product owners need to be aligned with the head of tech and they need to collaborate themselves too, which means that if they have, for example, individual goals and they get a raise for individual um, performance, it's not going to work because they need collective goals. So it makes um, the change go up to the top of the company because you have to adapt a few things throughout the company in order to make Agile succeed. Got it. So we've talked, you talked a bit about, um, you've seen a lot of successes. So that made me think of the measures of success. So what are the measures of success in Agile? How do you identify whether or not a particular team is performing well? It's, it's usually the, the speed at which we can deliver a product to, to the customer with the right features. It's, the, you know, the, the, the fact that we no longer have features that are not used by customers. So we always prioritize every two weeks, you know, every sprint, we try to get the feedback and say, what is the most important now for you? Now we've done all that. What's the most important? And often customers change their mind when, once they see something. They say, okay, now I have enough for this functionality. Now I would need more of the other one. I didn't think about it before because I hadn't seen the product running. Now I see it running, I change my mind. And you always pivot a, a little bit for to satisfy the customer. And Agile is really about that, delivering the value for customer as early as possible. So if we were to, um, and uh, I'll use this, use this as a segue into organizational behavior management, but if we we're looking at this from an OBM perspective and we created a scorecard for Agile developers, I would imagine based on uh, what you've talked about today, it would involve number of features as one measure, uh, the time it took to create those features, and then I would imagine there would be some sort of quality measure that includes like number of bugs in the system. And then the final measure would be customer satisfaction. Would those four measures uh, work well for an agile developer scorecard? Um, I would add collaboration. I would, add, I would add lots of things related to how the team is behaving as a group. Um, and usually we measure it by the performance of the team itself rather than individual performance. Um, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty difficult to evaluate uh, the performance of software developers. There are people in the industry who say, like uh, Laszlo Buck, for example, the former uh, HR head of, of Google, there are some, between one developer and another, you can find a ratio of 100 or 1,000. In terms of what they bring to the company. Some of them are able to change the code in a way that will benefit to the whole company 
whereas others will only change line by line and have a very tiny effect on, on, on the company. So we, in software, we try to not assign uh, strict individual performance because we care for the product and also because no one has a clue about how much a modification in the code can bring and until you see the customer using it. So it's, it's better to focus on what the customer is saying rather than trying to track individual by individual. Do you find that, so I, I, think, there's a, I think there's a stigma out there about software developers that um, they're kind of a recluse. They're, they're, um, they're, pe- they're homebodies. They're people that don't like to interact with other people. Do you find that software developers prefer working in teams or prefer to work on their own? Usually they prefer to work in teams uh, because of the, of the feedback, but some of them are very, very experts in, in one thing. They, they like to work alone. Um, and Agile is not good at handling these kind of people because we try to put them on innovation topics or uh, they are named experts and they go from one team to another to support the teams. For example, we find a place for these kind of profiles. But usually the teams tend to be uh, homogeneous and when you have stars, it's, it's you have to find another way to integrate them, usually. But it works. I mean, there are ways to do that as, as, as long as you don't have 50% of them being experts. <laughs> so, do you, uh, so in a good software development team, would you have different experts at um, different tasks or would you have uh, software developers that are all really good at the same task and then you break them up? How would you create that type of team? So it's interesting because when when you think about a team and if you think about a team that has to deliver something in two weeks, it's actually the team that commits to deliver in two weeks. So there is no individual performance in there. And um, this kind of system encourages people to collaborate. When one person is late on something, the others from the team might help her to to finish in time in the two weeks. Um, So that down the road, we have people who start developing um, what we call a T profile, being very good at one thing and fairly good at other things in order to collaborate with others. Um, And we try to encourage that. So, for example, when I talked about the Scrum meeting in the morning, like the stand-up meeting, um, when someone says, uh, I'm stuck, I need some help, someone else can give a hand, like one hour working together. And it is in the process. I mean, there is a, a moment in the day where people can ask for help. So we're trying to encourage that, and, and then going back to the uh, the goals of, and the way we give um, uh, performance uh, evaluations. Um, the way the team is performing is important. So uh, in the agile world, there is the OKR system that is used. It's it stands for um, objectives and key results, and one part of it is like a scorecard. But the other one is a fuzzy goal, like we need to achieve that together. And it's goal, it's a goal for the team. So we mix the two 
we don't lose track of what the people are doing individually, but we also try to federate the whole team around something that is more, more global. Excellent. So you establish a vision and uh, yeah. kind of a, a, a group goal, group uh, mission for everyone to achieve. Um, that sounds very uh, reinforcing. It sounds like it would motivate the uh, developers. Yeah. Hmm. Now, now so, the, big, the big challenge is to not assign goals that are too, too difficult to reach. Yeah, I think that's, that's a challenge for every organization, right? Um, so I, I'd like to use that as an opportunity to segue over to organizational behavior management. So uh, you have some training in organizational behavior management, and I, I wanted to ask your opinion about organizational behavior management in Agile. So do you see there being similarities and differences between the two methodologies, and what, what are they? So um, I would put them in a, on a different... Um, in different categories, Agile is a process, and and OBM is rather um, uh, it's the way to manage the people, but it's not the, related to the process itself. Um, so I think that the, the two are very compatible because um, OBM relies on positive reinforcement. Um, then Agile provides a system to deliver something at a regular pace. So Agile provides um, a framework that makes OBM very easy to implement because you have a real product with, you have all the people at hand around, around um, in the same place working together. You can see the behaviors of everyone. You have this frequency, this drumbeat. So you have lots of opportunities to do positive reinforcement and to shape um, the behaviors. So, and the fact that you have this product, which is the, the permanent product in OBM, you know, it's something that is the result, the outcome of the work of the whole team. It's all there. Every, every day you have something running. You can comment it. You can talk about it. And it gives um, an Im implicit feedback to, uh, to the whole team. So you have means to reinforce the behaviors indirectly to, of all the team doing the, the, the the product. Uh, there, so there is feedback, um, and you you also have, um, I would say, um, every two weeks that you you give autonomy to the team. So the team is planning itself what they are going to commit for two weeks. It's not the management who says you're going to do that. So the team says this is how much we can do in two weeks. So we commit on it. Uh, so there is delegation a lot and uh, there is empowerment for the team as well um, and uh, um, if we make the connection with OBM uh, we have to take care as managers to not assign goals on to not push the team too far because if we have this nice system agile working with goals that the team is reaching every two sprint two weeks it's good but if we have punishment coming every two weeks it's a nightmare, and it all the the only difference is the mindset of the manager and the way they will either put pressure or not take into account what the team is saying and say, and assigning you know priorities that are achievable or not. So OBM, I would say a, a minimum of OBM knowledge is even needed in order to make not make 
this nice uh, agile framework go in the wrong direction because then you have a two weeks punishment. <laughs> <laughs> so you see those uh, the two different uh, systems as complementary, that they work yeah. well together. Yeah, and I, I really see the, the fact that if you want to do positive reinforcement and for what for any kind of behavior, you can use these two weeks product um, iterations as a basis for all the progress you want to, to put in the organization. If you want, you can have one-on-one -on -one meetings with all the staff and say, uh, I've seen the demo, two weeks, uh, the two weeks demo, it's fantastic work. Um, I know what, you've con what you have contributed in, in this product. So now, how about working, improving this skill for the next two weeks, for example? And you have a means to see the progress of everyone in your team based on iteration of a real product. And you have the opportunity to give positive feedback to everyone in the team contributing to the product. So it's a fantastic way to, to do a shaping of uh, lots of things you want. So do you feel like uh, learning OBM is important for uh, agile ma uh, managers to ensure that they're using positive reinforcement uh, more frequently than they are using aversive contingencies uh, like punishment and so on? Uh, so I, I have, um, I, I know OBM and I used it this way. Now I try to have my first line managers do it. Uh, it's pretty difficult to talk about OBM to to people. Um, um, I would say um, directly talking about uh, positive reinforcement. They don't know what it is. You have to explain everything. So I tried to to do it, do it in the indirect manner. Uh, one thing I used, for example, was um, the um, I showed them one video that I love. It's uh, learned helplessness. There's a video by Cherish Nixon on YouTube that shows how a class gets, you know, gets into uh, learned helplessness in, in, in five minutes or so. And I showed that to my team, my team of managers. And, they, and I, they figured out that in the few iterations of negative feedback to their teams, they could just destroy all the motivation. And they were just like, wow. We, we are, that's the, the manager we don't want to be. <laughs> uh, and, and I use that as a trigger to, to, to tell them, look, not being aware of it, you, could, you, you are probably already doing that without knowing it. So how can we do diff something different? Um, so it was more an awareness. And the other thing I love that is very easy to do also is to talk about the four to one ratio positive versus uh, negative feedback. And so I know it's not exactly positive reinforcement. It's a ratio between positive interactions and negative interactions, I think. But when you talk about that, they, the people make the connection between dopamine and, and um, the role of what, how the brain works, because it's very fashionable these days. So they really easily connect to that. And uh, it's very also it's very easy to implement when you when you're a manager you have lots of meetings um, it's pretty difficult to keep a track of everything you're saying everything you're doing but 
just thinking about for this person, how many positive feedback did he get? How many negative did he get today? Just think about it and, and try to track my own reactions and try to track what's going on in the organization in terms of positive and negative. And, and only saying positive and negative do not have the same weight. If you say, this is good, but you blew this, it's no, it, it's very negative. You need four goods for one bad. And that is a, a big discovery for lots of people. So I, I only started starting with that. Already something is a first step. Not mentioning OBM. Because I, I tried to talk to OBM to agile coaches as well. Pretty difficult. <laughs> I would imagine it would help if uh, if you show if you talked about like the success stories that you've had and combine the two science together, I would imagine that would help. Uh, yeah, I, so I think there, there are lots of opportunities. I mean, the four to one ratio is something we need. We definitely re need to push because it's easy to understand. Um, now, there is one thing that really matters to me now. It's, it, it's lots of, a lot about the groups. And uh, there is a part of um, behavioral science that I didn't see enough. It's uh, kernels. It's how groups behave together. Uh, there was uh, work by uh, Tony Biglen and uh, Dennis Embry about how to manage groups based on behavioral science and uh, leverages, le leveraging positive reinforcement. And they call it kernels. And there are lots of examples. And these kernels are very close to what happens in agile. It's uh, agile um, in agile coaches um, in the agile coaches world. They have lots of funny games to bring the teams together to play cards or whatever. Uh, when you look at that, it's very close to kernels. So I think there is a big, a strong connection that we could make uh, between OBM for groups, uh, permanent products, also because this is what the what agile is about. And, uh, and behavioral science to make it really efficient. I think there is a, 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 a good opportunity for, at the group level. So now that you're making the connections um, in other ways with Agile, uh, something that uh, you and I both wanted to talk about was Agile applied to other areas of industry. Yes. So something that, uh, you, were ta that uh, you taught me uh, that I wasn't aware of is Beyond IT. Can you talk a little bit about what Beyond IT is? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's very interesting because it's taking off right now. Um, I started doing Agile in the, in the, I would, 2006 or seven. I started that. It was only software. Then it started scaling in larger organizations. Um, and then since 2016, it started really in other places, like marketing teams can work in Agile, sales team can work in Agile. You know, they have um, they have other other products than software. They deliver a marketing campaign, for example. Uh, HR teams uh, can also work in Agile. They deliver a recruitment plan, so they could track with post-it notes where they stand in terms of recruitment plan, for example. So there are lots of things that we can do with the same 
um, I would say, the same mindset, but it has to be adapted according to each each sector, each industry. Uh, and um, I see lots of promises for um, the application of agile, I would say the adaptation, because it needs to be changed, of agile in every single sector. Healthcare, I think everything can be changed. Well, I think that that's been a big transition in a lot of different industries over the course of the past decade and a half was moving from uh, individuals working on projects and, as, as you mentioned earlier, siloed uh, working on a specific aspect of the project to uh, teams working on projects together. And I really feel like, based on what you've told me, that's where Agile shines, is having a group uh, working towards a common goal. Is that yeah. a good way to look at it? Yeah. Exactly. So uh, before we close here, there, there was uh, something else that I wanted to ask kind of in general. Um, where do you see the trends in the software development industry going? So what do you see being the big new thing coming up? Is it AI? Is it um, some of the ethical concerns we were talking about earlier with deep fakes? Where do you see the trends going in software development? Well, I see um, I, I see AI, of course, and also the uh, the fact that um, pervasiveness, that the fact that IT is everywhere, that you have connected devices all over the place, so they will be present uh, in whatever you do. So you get quick feedback, and you you can you have means to um, to change the life of everyone. Again, for good or for bad, but it's it's going to be very very pervasive. Um, we even think about connecting neurons to computers, so that's what uh, um, Elon Musk was talking about. That yeah, yeah. Elon Musk was doing. So I, I think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't know for, for good or for bad. Anyway, it's a technology, so it can be used both ways. Um, it's funny, for example, uh, to, to look at uh, what Nir Eyal is, is doing. He made a book about UX. It's, I, I think it's the standard for UX designers. It's called Hooked. And he explains how to hook behaviors. And then um, he just wrote another book about Indestructible. Uh, that when you read it, it's, uh, he has a nice video that looks like act, like uh, how to develop habits that prevent you from being hooked from, to something. So the, the same technology and the same, I mean, the same way of thinking can be used for good or for bad. And this is happening. We need to be to be there uh, in order to make it for the good one, for the good part, of course. Um, Absolutely. And something that I've seen too is, um, uh, to your point about those books and that first book, Hooked, is software programmers have gotten so good at building positive reinforcement into systems, and they seem to have a good understanding of schedules of reinforcement too. And I think that's where the hooked part comes in. So they'll start off on a really dense schedule of reinforcement and get you hooked using the system, and yeah. then they keep you there. So then they maintain your behavior of interacting with the system, right? Yes. And they, they may not even know the background, the behavioral science. They just get all the data. They just test. Uh, how, how about doing this? Does it, does it work better or worse than the previous version? They just experiment. 
and they right. end up by doing the same work <laughs> that scientists do. They have all the data, they figure out what the best way to, to hook people. Absolutely. You know, we talk about this all the time as behavior analysts, that uh, behavior is a phenomenon, that we don't own the rights to behavior. Uh, behavior analysis is just our precise verbal description of that phenomenon. That's mm -hmm. it. Um, as you said, they may not be using our words, you know, like schedules of reinforcement, fixed time or fixed ratio, but they're looking at the data and it's saying this is working. So they continue to do that. Right. Yeah. So um, we always like to close off these uh, interviews uh, talking about um, where we can find uh, the person that we're interviewing next. So can you talk a little bit about what projects you're currently working on, what you've got coming on the horizon, and if you're doing any um, other speaking gigs or anything like that where people can find you? So I work with, um, with big companies, so I, I cannot disclose, but I work on, on large-scale changes. And my, my um, big interest today is how do we scale change in a positive way? Uh, and um, the way it is usually taught is very difficult to scale because it's a lot about individuals and scorecards, etc. So my, my big um, topic is how do we scale that in a way that the system, that the organization naturally delivers positive reinforcement to people? That, that is, it's just built in. So, um, and it, not, it needs not to be explicitly in scorecards, etc. It could be like we designed the system so that there is a frequent way to get feedback from a, pro a product, from a permanent product, for example. Um, so that is something I really look into. Kernels are one way of doing it at team level, and I'm now working at the big organization level. How do we get a whole organization uh, into agile? And it means people with um, a lot of pressure at the top, and they want to be nice to people, but they also need to deliver results. So we have to be able to make to mix positive reinforcement with efficiency, and that is a big challenge. Um, and to me, the the way to achieve that is to integrate ACT principles. You know, to 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 talk about vision. With you know, the vision of the product is something, but you can can also have a vision of the organization and try to focus to align the people in one direction. So vision is one thing, have a regular feedback. Um, if we think of Agile, to me, it's also a way to, uh, to implement flexibility in the organization because people have, every two weeks, they change priorities, but they also experiment things. You know, they might be doing something and they get feedback, no, it's not the way I thought about it, so how about changing it? So it's also a way to, to put some flexibility in the organization. Of course, it's not at the individual level. It's not like a therapy, but it's it's a framework that makes it possible to put flexibility in the, in the teams. So there are lots of things like that that I'm looking at now. I think that's really important work. I some of the most uh, some of the most common issues we see are exactly what you're talking about, where uh, organizations want to treat their people better. They want to look at their employees as stakeholders, but they also have to be able to turn a profit so the uh, company can continue. So I'm sure you're dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I, I see something that we're talking about technology, but there is also a crisis about management. There, is a, there are lots of managers today that have a lot of pressure, uh, and it's, it's unfortunate because the, it, the problem is not money, it's not skills, it is speed. The speed at which people learn new things, digital transformations, you have new tools, new ways of working coming, and you have to adapt constantly. So we need to find ways to make an organization evolve in, in a very smooth way, but sustainable, uh, but, in, but that goes at the right speed. And the people who are uh, really in crisis today are the people in management because they are under uh, more and more pressure. There are lots of studies that show that now. And I think OBM has the power to, you know, to help managers to, to cope with that situation. Excellent, excellent. So I will leave it on that. Uh, so Laurent, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you. And uh, that concludes another episode of Business Science Magazine. Thank you guys for joining.